Hello and welcome to the first episode of the New Testament in its World podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bird. In this podcast, N.T. Wright and I explore questions about the world of the New Testament. We look at questions like, what is the purpose of the New Testament? What was the first century understanding of the Kingdom of God? What is the meaning and significance of Jesus' resurrection? Who was the Apostle Paul and why should we care? These are the same questions that we explore in our book, The New Testament in Its World. But before we begin, a bit about who we are. As I said, I'm Mike Bird. I'm the Academic Dean and Lecturer in Theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. I've written several books on the historical Jesus, the Gospels, Paul, along with several commentaries. In addition to myself, you'll also be hearing from N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright as he's known to his friends. Tom is a very well-known and celebrated New Testament scholar. He's written many books such as Surprised by Hope, Simply Christian, and the Christian Origins and Question of God series. In today's episode, you'll hear a conversation Tom and I had the last time we visited Jerusalem together about our personal journeys through the New Testament. Then we hear from Tom on the kinds of things we need to have in mind when we begin our study of the New Testament. Finally, we sit down with Craig Keener for a conversation about the Greco-Roman context of the first century Christians. And now, please enjoy the first episode of the New Testament in its World podcast. What is the New Testament for? And what does that tell us about how we should study it? I own many different kinds of books. I've got a lot of history books and I love to find out more and more, not only about what happened in the past, but what it was like being there and the ways in which people thought, what motivated them. I have a good many novels and books of short stories. And though they don't describe things that actually happened, they encourage me to think about why people behave the way they do, not least why they get into the messes they do and what might be done about it. I even have quite a few books of plays, Shakespeare, of course, but lots of others too. I enjoy the theatre, and if you let your imagination loose, you can read a play at home and see it going on in your mind's eye. It would be quite different, of course, if I knew I was going to be acting in a play. I would be reading it not just to learn my own lines, but to think into the different characters and get a sense of what it would be like being the person I'd be playing and relating to the others. So we could go on with poetry high on my list as well, and biography too. But there are plenty of quite different books which are really important to me. I possess several atlases, partly for when I'm planning travel, but also because I'm fascinated by the way different parts of the world relate to one another. And since my work involves different languages, I've got several dictionaries which I use quite a lot. On another tack, I enjoy golf, even though I'm not much good at it, and I've got quite a few books about the game and how to get better, which I read but don't usually manage to obey. I've got a couple of books on car maintenance, a few books about how to make your garden look better, and first aid books for health emergencies, and so on. Where do we fit the New Testament into all that? For some people, it seems to function at the level of car maintenance or garden tips or even first aid. It's a book to turn to when you need to know about a particular issue or problem. For some, it's like a dictionary, a place where you can look up all the things you're supposed to know and believe about the Christian faith, 
or maybe an atlas helping you to find your way around the world without getting lost. And this is what some people mean when they speak of the Bible being the ultimate authority. And so they study it like you might study a dictionary or an atlas or even a car manual. Now, that's not a bad thing. Perhaps it's better to start there than nowhere at all. But the puzzle is that the New Testament really doesn't look like that kind of book. If we assume, as I do, that the reason we have the New Testament the way it is, is that this is what God wanted us to have, that this is what, by the strange promptings of the Holy Spirit, God enabled people like Paul and Luke and John and the others to write, then we perhaps should pay more attention to what it might mean that this sort of a book, or rather these sorts of books, because the New Testament contains many quite different books, that this is the one that we've been given. And only when we do that will we really be living under the authority of this book and discovering what that means in practice. Now, when we rub our eyes and think about this further, we discover that the New Testament includes all those other kinds of books as well. History, short stories which didn't happen but which open up new worlds. I'm thinking of the parables of Jesus in particular. Biography, poetry, and much besides. And though none of the New Testament is written in the form of a play to be acted on stage, there is a strong sense in which that's precisely what it is. Or rather, it's part of a play, the much larger play which consists of the whole Bible, the heaven and earth story, the story of God and the world, of creation and covenant, of creation spoiled and covenant broken, and then of covenant renewed and creation restored. And the New Testament is the book where all this comes into land, and it lands in the form of an invitation come up on stage. This can and should be your story, my story, the story which makes sense of us, which restores us to sense after the nonsense of our lives. It's the story which breathes hope into our world of chaos, which breathes love into cold hearts and lives. The New Testament involves history because it's the true story of Jesus and his first followers. It includes poetry, because there are some vital things that you can only say that way. It contains biography, because the key to God's purposes has always been the humans who bear his image and ultimately the one true human who perfectly reflects his image, Jesus himself. And yes, there are some bits which you can use like a dictionary or a car manual or a how-to-play-golf kind of book. But these mean what they mean and function best as a result, within the larger whole. And when we study the New Testament, it's the larger whole that ought to be our primary consideration. So how do we fit into that larger whole? How do we understand the play, the real-life story of God and the world, which reached its ultimate climax in Jesus of Nazareth, and which then flows out in the power of the Spirit to transform the world with his love and justice? How do we find our own parts and learn to play them? How do we let the poetry of the early Christians whether it's the short and dense poems that we find in Paul or the extended fantasy literature of the book of Revelation, how do we let these transform our imaginations 
so that we can start to think in new ways about God and the world, about the powers that still threaten darkness and death, and about our role in implementing the victory of Jesus. One central answer is that we must learn to study the New Testament for all it's worth, and that's what this whole course is designed to do. Jesus insisted that we should love God with our minds, as well as with our hearts, our souls, our strength. Devotion matters, but it needs direction. Energy matters, but it needs information. And that's why in the early church, one of the most important tasks was teaching. Indeed, the Christian church has led the way for 2,000 years in making education in general, and biblical education in particular, available to people of all sorts. After all, a good many of the early Christians were functionally illiterate. And part of the glory of the gospel is that it's for everyone, not just the academics, the brain boxes. There shouldn't be an elite who get it while everybody else is simply going along with the flow. So the early Christians taught people to read in order that they could be thinking, contributing actors in the drama. The New Testament is for everyone. By contrast with most of the ancient world, early Christianity was very much a bookish culture. We sometimes think of the movement as basically a religion, but a first century observer blundering into a meeting of Christians would almost certainly see them first as some kind of educational institution. This is the more remarkable in that education in that world was mostly reserved for the rich, for the aristocracy. And what's more, the Christians were at the forefront of a new kind of book, the Codex, with sheets stuck together something like a modern book, as opposed to the scroll, which couldn't hold nearly so much, and which was hard to use to find different passages. In fact, the Christians developed a kind of Codex that was more user-friendly than had been known before. They really did want everyone to be able to read this vital and early giving set of early writings. This bookish culture, by the way, is why Christianity was a translating faith from the beginning. The movement went out from the Aramaic-speaking world into the larger Greek-speaking world, then into the Latin to the Northwest and Coptic and Ethiopic to the South and East and so on. So those dictionaries remain important too. But the main thing to realize is that the reason there's a New Testament is because of Jesus himself. Jesus never wrote anything, so far as we know, apart from those scribbles in the sand in John's Gospel, very tantalizing. But what he did and said, and particularly his claim to be launching God's kingdom on earth as in heaven, and his vocation to die a horrible death, to defeat the powers of darkness, and bring God's new creation into being with his resurrection, all this meant what it meant within the setting he deliberately gave it, the setting of the ancient story of Israel and the ongoing hopes and longings of the Jews of his day, longings in particular for God's coming kingdom. But quite quickly, most early Christians were not from that Jewish world. They needed to be told not only that Jesus died for your sins, but that Jesus was Israel's Messiah and that the meaning of his death and resurrection was the messianic meaning to be found in the long story of Israel's scriptures. In other words, that the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 
and to explain what that meant and how it worked out in practice. Four people took it prayerfully upon themselves to tell the story of Jesus in such a way as to bring out its different aspects. Several others, and one in particular, namely Paul, wrote letters to churches which discussed particular issues, but which did so by focusing that same larger story onto whatever needed to be addressed. And one man, out of persecution and prayer, and a mind and heart soaked in the scriptures, was granted a breathtaking vision of heaven opened, and indeed heaven and earth coming together with Jesus at the middle of it. Welcome to the New Testament. So from very early on, the followers of Jesus discovered that two things were happening. First, when they read these books, they were drawn into a life of worship and prayer. The books are self-involving, like plays and poems. They say, this is what's going on. These are the many dimensions that are drawn together. Now, you come up on stage, learn your lines, and join in. And the first thing to join in with is worship. The worship that's rooted in the worship of ancient Israel, not least the Psalms, but now reworked around Jesus and re-energized by his spirit. We can see this going on in the New Testament from many angles, whether it's Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, or whether it's Paul framing one of his most difficult and painful discussions, Romans 9 to 11, like a psalm with lament at the start and praise at the end and intercession in the middle. There are, in other words, specific elements of worship all through the New Testament. But what really counts when we stand back and look at it is the whole thing, the whole story of the Gospels and Acts, the letters as wholes, the book of Revelation as a whole. This is God's story. And we ought to be praising him for it and in it. And the subtext all the way through is to invite the readers of these books to praise the God of creation and covenant for renewing the covenant and restoring creation. After all, the phrase New Testament is simply a way of saying new covenant. And a covenant isn't something you study at a distance, it's something you sign on for, or rather something God calls you to be part of. So the whole New Testament is written not exactly to create the new world and the new covenant relationship. God has done that in Jesus and is doing it through the Spirit. But it is to tell the story of that new world in such a way that we, the readers, are drawn into that world, which is the world of worship, of lament, yes, of intercession, yes, but always and ultimately of praise. The New Testament exists because God wants to involve real humans, thinking, breathing, loving humans in the ongoing work and life of the kingdom. And if praise is to be directed aright, because there are many false trails, many misunderstandings which can easily arise, then it's vital we study the New Testament for all it's worth, the history, the maps, the dictionary, the gardening manual, the lot, and especially the play. How, we ask, does God's great drama work? And what part are we called to play in it? You'll only discover that as you study the book on the one hand and learn to worship God with your mind as well as your heart on the other hand. 
As we do that, a strange thing starts to happen. Paul says in Colossians 3 that the gospel of Jesus will renew us in knowledge according to the Creator's image. When we worship the true God, with that worship shaped by the story of Jesus seen in the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures, in other words, worship which is using the New Testament and its reading as an act of worship, we find that we are being made into image bearers, called to reflect God's love and purposes into the world. The book of Revelation speaks of us being rescued from sin in order to be made into a royal priesthood, that ancient biblical notion which summarizes the whole human vocation. We are called to reflect the praises of creation back to the creator in worship, as I've just been saying, and thereby we are to be polished up as angled mirrors to reflect the powerful healing love of the creator back out into the world. And the New Testament is designed, I would say designed by the Holy Spirit, to be the book which, when we read it, shapes and energizes and directs us for mission. Worship then is the first thing, mission is the second thing. Worship and mission go hand in hand. And reading and studying the New Testament is the vital and non-negotiable means by which both are given their pattern and their power. The New Testament, in other words, isn't there to tell us simply how to get to heaven. Indeed, to the surprise of many people, that isn't what it's saying at all. That's why some theories about the New Testament and its authority don't work as well as they should. The way some Christians approach it, it would be better if the Spirit had given us something more like a car manual or even a railway timetable. No, it's a much more interesting book than that. The New Testament is designed to draw us into the story of God's plan to rescue the world from chaos and idolatry and to launch his new transformative creation. It's happened in Jesus, and now by the Spirit, it'll be put into operation through people who are shaped by the biblical vision itself, by the stories of Jesus and his first followers, the latter stretching out into our own day. The first Christians found themselves being formed as they were telling and hearing the Jesus story into a community of generous love, bringing healing and hope to the poor and the sick, confronting the bullying powers of the world with the news of the kingdom of God and of a new way of being human. And as we get to know the world of the first Christians and the urgent things that Paul and the others wrote to them, we find ourselves being addressed, our faith built up. We find ourselves called to face suffering, persecution, challenges as they did themselves. And above all, we find ourselves called and equipped to shine like lights in the world of our own day. The New Testament is the manual of mission because it is first the manual of worship, not the worship of a distant or remote deity, but the worship of the God who made the world and is remaking it. And it's not a mission to rescue souls away from the world. It's a mission to bring God's generous rescuing love and glory into every corner of creation. The New Testament tells the story of how in Jesus, God reclaimed his ultimate saving sovereignty over the world. And it tells it in such a way as to draw us too into celebration and gratitude, 
so that we can be part of that saving purpose ourselves. This huge purpose and promise is itself vulnerable in the same way that a work of art is vulnerable. If somebody composes a wonderful piece of music, then if the musicians just mess around and get it wrong, you can imagine the composer thinking, how could you do that to my work of art? And in the same way, God's purposes for the world can be misunderstood. People can distort those purposes for their own ends or in the service of other forces and agendas. That happened in the first century and it's happened again and again ever since. The worship can become stale or self-congratulatory. The mission can become a mere religious veneer on a cultural or personal power trip, and so on. That is why study is vital. Every generation needs to be renewed in knowledge. Every part of the church needs to wake up to the whole larger story of what the New Testament is actually saying. And that's why we believe a course like this is so important. The first experience that I have any memory of of the New Testament was on Coronation Day when the present Queen of England was crowned, which was June the 2nd, 1953, which happened to be my mother's birthday. And because it was Coronation Day, my sister, who's a little older than me, and I were both given a Bible, the King James Version, a little chunky four-square thing. And uh, I was only four and a half, and I'd only just learned to read. And so I was a bit overwhelmed by this thing. But I remember my sister and me sitting down on our bedroom floor and leafing through, and we found the shortest book, well, one of the shortest books, the letter to Philemon, towards the back of the New Testament. And we read it to each other, uh, sitting there that morning. And I remember thinking, wow, we've made a start. Something's going on here. And uh, I didn't then start reading the Bible on a regular basis for another six or seven years. But when I was about 11 or 12, somebody suggested I should start reading the Bible on a regular basis. And uh, I've never seen any reason to stop. What, what about you? Well, for me, it was very different. I grew up in a uh, very non-religious home uh, in suburban Australia where religion was just a non-entity. Uh, I, I caught glimpses and things from here around the place, what you see on TV or at the movies. But it wasn't until I joined the Australian Army that I had anything to do with it. You'd go to these Anzac Day memorial services, kind of like oh. Veterans Day, where there would be some Bible readings and these things called Gospels and Epistles. I mean, it was just a foreign language to me. But then uh, uh, later on, I, I eventually visited a, a charming Baptist church in Sydney, and for the first time I heard the New Testament read and preached, and someone gave me my own New Testament, which was a lovely pink NIV, I remember, and, and reading that for the first time then set me on the journey of wanting to know more about Jesus. Now, we've obviously got our own personal stories about how we first came across the New Testament, but why should you know, anyone be interested in the New Testament? Well, I think anyone who picks up the New Testament will find, if they give it a chance, that it is one of the most explosive books ever written. Of course, compiled from different writings, but it now forms one complete, rather strange, but very powerful book. But actually, the reason why the New Testament is so important and powerful is not unlike the reason why this place we're standing in is so important and powerful that the ancient Israelites believed that the living God who'd made heaven and earth had decided to come and take up residence on this place and that that's why they built the temple here and the temple was the place where heaven and earth came together and the fascinating thing about Jesus is that Jesus both in what he did and what he said and then in the followers who then talked about him after his death and resurrection 
they and he really believed that he was the place where heaven and earth had come together, as though the temple itself was like an advance signpost for what was going to happen climactically and decisively with Jesus himself. And then the New Testament is, as it were, the fallout from that extraordinary event. Uh, everyone's scrambling around to say, what was this just happened? What did it mean? And uh, how does it affect who we are now? And then they discovered this even more remarkable thing that as they were reading and as they were still writing and as they were wrestling with these issues, it was as though they themselves in doing this amazing literary thing were experiencing that coming together of heaven and earth. And they said this is because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who Jesus promised is helping us and guiding us in both writing this book in the first place and then as we read it and use it to help us to follow Jesus. So the reason why the New Testament matters is because Jesus matters. The reason Jesus matters is because he is the place and the means of heaven and earth coming together and revolutionizing everything from the world itself down to the details of our lives. So it's a Jesus and God thing. It's a Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit thing. And, and the, the, the New Testament enables us to be caught up in that drama and to make it real for ourselves. So if the New Testament is so important, how did it come to be? Yeah, I think that's an important question because we've got to remember the, the Bible just didn't fall from the sky, bound in leather, written in new old English with the words of Jesus in red. It came through a particular process. It came through the story and the struggles of the early church. It's, it's, it's about the, the diaries they were keeping, the, the sermons they were telling, the, the, their preaching and, and the, the problems amongst themselves they were trying to solve as they lived out their faith, not just in Jerusalem, but in the wider Greco-Roman world. And what that tells me that we've got to know something about that process. We've got to know what was going on in the in the early church for those very crucial first, you know, decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think even more crucial than that is actually knowing the background story. It's 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 not religion coming out of nowhere. It, it's it, it's got continuity with what is happening in this very place around yeah, us. Yeah. The story of the Jewish people. Now you'd agree yeah. with that, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the danger with not knowing that is that we all sort of assume. Yeah that the early church were people exactly like modern Western mm. people, except with no electronic toys, and that they had the same questions in their heads as we do. And some of them are the same, and some of them really aren't the same. And as you say, this place, Jerusalem, tells you a lot about that, because Jerusalem was, of course, for the Jewish people, the focus of hopes and fears over a very long period of time. But particularly in the last two or 300 years before the time of Jesus, there were all sorts of movements of hope, of revolution, and then different armies coming in 200 years before Jesus, the Syrians, and about 100 years before Jesus, the Romans, and squashing this place and saying, we're running it now. And the Jewish people saying, no, one day God is going to come and do a new thing. He's going to come and be king. Everything will be different. We will be rescued. And maybe God will sort out the mess of the whole world. And unless you know that story, then you're not in a position to see what issues it was that Jesus was addressing and what issues it was that the New Testament writers were addressing. Because they were saying two things, both God has done what he promised and it didn't look like we thought it was going to. Something new was happening, but the new thing made the sense it made within that old story. So we need to know the backstory as well as then being able to study the New Testament in three dimensions, if you like.
This book and this course follow the line of the big project that I've been working on for many years, the, the book series called Christian Origins and the Question of God. So it starts with looking at the New Testament in its whole context, its historical context. How do we do history? How do we do uh, reading the literature of the first century? How do we think theologically in such a way as to understand what the New Testament is doing? And then particularly, how do we understand the historical context of first century Judaism and of the Greco-Roman world within which the Jewish world was set. Because if we don't understand that world, we will be making all kinds of anachronistic assumptions on large and small scales. So that's really important to set that out. But then obviously the New Testament focuses on Jesus, and so the course moves particularly to look at Jesus, who he was, what he did, why he did it, what he thought and taught that his death was going to be all about, and so we're looking historically at the period of Jesus' public career and trying to see it in three dimensions. How did it mean what it meant to Jesus? And particularly, what did he mean by saying the kingdom of God is at hand, is breaking in right now? And then how did his death on the cross, both from his point of view and seen later, how did that affect the kingdom? How did it defeat the powers of evil and so make the way for the new creation to be launched at Easter? And so that brings us then from Jesus to the Easter event itself, the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. And again, to understand that, as many, many people inside the church and out don't, we need to understand what the word resurrection itself was actually all about. It wasn't just a fuzzy word for life after death. It was all about actually people who had been thoroughly dead and buried coming back to life in a bodily form. And then we explore both how that was described by Paul, the first writer about it, and how he's wrestling with Israel's scriptures to, to show what the resurrection of Jesus really was and is, and then how the gospels, written later but preserving the early traditions, how they tell the story and what they mean by it. And then, of course, we move from the resurrection to Paul himself. Paul working busily in the 40s and 50s and probably dying in the early 60s, having an extraordinary impact, probably one of the most significant public intellectuals of all time, and yet being persecuted and stoned and shipwrecked and going sleepless and hungry and being thrown into jail and being misunderstood by many of the people in his own churches. What was his life about and why did he write those letters to those churches in that way and how do we put together the package of his thought and so then from Paul we move to the Gospels the Gospels which are about Jesus but which were written most likely um, at the earliest around the time that Paul was killed and then quite possibly over the next two or three decades and so we are asking the question why are people telling the story this way what is Mark doing with his story Matthew with his and so on and how then do we see these four Gospels contributing together to the early Christians' growing understanding of who Jesus is, and not just as a historical reminiscence, but how did he launch the kingdom of God of which we are then parts ourselves? And that leads us towards the end of the first Christian generation in which the early church, as we see in some of the so-called little letters or the Catholic letters, um, Hebrews, James, Peter and Peter, John, John, John and Jude, how are they facing the challenges of that 
end of the first generation and the transition into the second generation? Uh, were they expecting that there would be false teachers? And if not, what are they going to do about them when they arise? What happens when people from within the fellowship start teaching very different things to what they themselves had been originally taught? How do we grasp then the challenge of church unity, of church love, of church mission when facing these challenges both from outside and in? And of course, that all leads the eye to the last great book in the New Testament, the Revelation of St. John, which is one of the most breathtaking pieces of writing ever. Whether or not we'll ever get our minds around it, it's a book we have to grapple with. It's as though at the end of all of the New Testament canon and actually the Christian canon as a whole, Old and New Testaments together, here is the vision of new creation, which corresponds to the original creation at the beginning of Genesis, but which has seen the story through and has seen it now focused on Jesus, the Lion of Judah, who is the Lamb who was slain. So in and through it all then, we are left with the question, what are we to do with this New Testament? And as we wrestle with how the New Testament was transmitted through all the different manuscripts that we've got with all their differences and how it was put together into what we call the canon, when there were other books which some wanted to get in and some books that people weren't quite sure should be in. When people are working on all of that, what we're seeing is the beginning of our task as well, which is so to live with this text that we become the people of God in and for the world of our own day. So we move from why the New Testament right at the beginning to the sense of the New Testament and the mission of God through his church in the world at the end. And when we make that journey through these amazing books, we find that our sense of worship and mission is again and again reoriented and refreshed and we hope fruitful. I'm here with my good friend Craig Keener, who is not only a brilliant, erudite, learned scholar of the New Testament and antiquity, he is also one of the nicest and warmest personalities I've ever met in my life. Uh, Craig is someone who has not simply studied the New Testament, uh, he has absorbed a lot of its uh, virtues and its Christ-likeness. So it is my pleasure to be here with my good friend Craig Keener uh, and to talk to him about the New Testament. Now, Craig, uh, you're very well known for several brilliant New Testament commentaries, I think particularly of Matthew, John, Romans, uh, more recently um, Acts and Galatians, but you're also well known for a IVP background commentary on the New Testament, which has um, sold like 200,000 copies. I mean, this really is a, is a good thing. Can you tell me why is it important to know something about the background of the New Testament? When I first became a Christian, I, you know, I was converted from a completely non-Christian background, so I had a lot of catching up to do. So I would read sometimes 40 chapters of the Bible a day, and what they did, it fixed context in my mind. But after a while, I began to notice I was missing something because the, there were certain things that the biblical writers didn't have to explain to their audience because they lived in the same culture. Or there were certain things that they knew about their audience's situation. They and the audience both knew it, but they didn't have to explain it uh, any more than they had to you know, give us a translation of all the Greek words in which they were writing. 
So it really struck me one day, I was reading Romans chapter 1 and got to the place where it speaks of the saints or the consecrated ones in Rome and realized, wow, um, this actually was a real letter to them. And so if I want to catch the full impact that it would have had to its first audience, I ought to know something about what was their situation. And that started me on a quest to get background for the New Testament because my teachers believed in it. I was in a Bible college at that time. My teachers believed in it. They gave us some, but they didn't have a whole lot. And if the Bible college teachers didn't have a whole lot and the seminary professors didn't have you know, enough to cover everything, you know, at least these were the people who should know where to go find it. So it started me on a quest. to. I wanted to make it available. And after I finished my, my PhD at Duke, I... Uh, I had collected by that point like 70,000 index cards. We didn't, we didn't have uh, computers back then uh, that were readily available. And so I had like 70,000 index cards taken from ancient sources, and I wanted to um, put that at people's fingertips and make, and make it widely available. And it, you include the electronic editions and the translations. It's, it's well over half a million. It's like... Uh, 800,000 now. Well, I mean, it's, I mean it's, there's a reason for that, is that when pastors or preachers or teachers are reading the Bible, they want to know things like, you know, like, you know, who was Pontius Pilate? You know, what was the city of Antioch? That type of thing. But, you know, I mean, in our book, The New Testament's World, uh, we've, we've really majored on New Testament background and context and the social setting. But we keep getting this question from people, a bit of, a bit of pushback saying, with all this focus on New Testament background, uh, are you not making New Testament interpretation very elitist? Like, unless you've got a PhD in Second Temple Judaism, unless you can read the Dead Sea Scrolls and Hebrew and Aramaic, unless you can do Latin and Greek, are, are you creating this magisterium of scholars who alone have the secret knowledge of background to understand the New Testament? Is all this emphasis of background somehow elitist? Are we saying that ordinary people can't interpret the Bible unless they know all of this background? So what do you say to something like that, Craig? Among the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament is the gift of teaching. And as long as teachers see themselves as servants to the rest of the body, you know, we're, we're resources there for the rest of the body. Um, to say that that's elitist is like saying that it was elitist for people to provide Bible translations. You know, no, if you, if you say you need translations, then you're elitist. No, we need to let people just read it in Greek and Hebrew, even if they don't understand Greek and Hebrew. No, those who provided translations came as servants to help explain that. And when we do the same with background, we're, we're there to serve the body of Christ, to help people better understand the texts. Yeah, that, and that's, a, that's a wonderful way to put it. I mean, we, we all need a, a teacher, and God's given the church teachers to help show how the background is relevant. And what, what I also, when, when I get that same question, I always tell people that the, the Protestant view is that there is a clarity to Scripture. You know, the, the plowboy can understand the New Testament in a sufficient way. But Protestants have always said that the clarity of Scripture only applies to the things necessary for salvation. So, you know, how to have a relationship with God is very clear from reading the Gospels and, and, and Paul's letters or, or Hebrews. But when you want to go deeper, uh, that's where you really do need a little bit more background, someone to fill in the gaps. 
And every now and again, I'll also have a student who will say something to me like, well, I, I don't need any of that New Testament background. You know, I'm just going to be led by the Spirit. And my response is always the same. I say, well, by learning some New Testament background, you give the Spirit more to work with. Yes. So how about that? There's more resources the Spirit can do, uh, use in, 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 in uh, leading you into much wiser, more wholesome and well-informed interpretations. Uh, now, in your many commentaries that you've written, Craig, do you have a particular favorite? My favorite would be my Acts commentary. Uh, I spent 10 years on it. Uh, it's, it's about 4,500 pages in fairly small print, some 45,000 extra biblical ancient references. Um, so it was a, a massive undertaking in that sense to marshal all the evidence from the ancient world to try to all, all the evidence that I could from the ancient world to try to better understand the book of Acts. And I just love Acts. I mean, either Acts or Revelation would be my favorite, but not, in, in terms of commentaries, it was, it was Acts, clearly. Yeah, I mean, it is a great, um, it is a great volume. It's, it's a massive, almost encyclopedia. I mean, it's, it's almost more of an Acts encyclopedia in commentary form rather than just a, 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 a commentary. Uh, but certainly, I think it is the uh, reference work for the book of Acts. Uh, point in fact, Craig, uh, when Tom and I were working on this volume, every so often we would have a minor disagreement or two on some particular aspect. And I remember once we had a minor disagreement on a feature of Paul's chronology, and I, I argued my case as best as I could. I said, finally, you need to go see the excursus that Craig Keener wrote in his Acts commentary. I think that's, that's the best exposition of the position uh, that I'm, I was advocating for. Uh, I don't know whether Tom ever got around to reading it, but I, but I found your Acts commentary one of the resources I was using when I was trying to, um, uh, trying to suggest with Tom we could maybe you know, take one particular p uh, position on chronology. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think I was able to convince him on that time. But you know, the, the Acts commentary uh, is, is very, very good. Uh, the other thing I was going to uh, ask you, Craig, how do we maintain our sense of spirituality as we engage in the study of the New Testament? Because, you know, it, it can be very dry, very cerebral. There is the, the danger, the temptation, the struggle that it will just become a, a very academic discipline, divorced from the, the life of piety, from our devotional life, our spiritual life. How do, you, how do you study the New Testament in a way that remains spiritually refreshing? Well, if we remember that the New Testament is God's Word and we approach it with that reverence, Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. So the framework with which you start is going to make a big difference. And God gave us the, the gift of His Spirit living in our hearts. And 1 Corinthians 2 talks about understanding spiritual things by spiritual means. So um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 also speaks of how uh, some people, their understanding is veiled when they read Scripture, but uh, because we have the Spirit, we see their Christ's glory and are transformed from one level of glory to another as we behold the image of Christ. So, uh, it, which isn't to say that only happens in Bible reading, 
But when we approach Bible reading with reverence and the fear of the Lord and seeking to hear God's voice there, seeking to hear God's message there, then it's always going to be a devotional exercise. The dry part of it is, well, you've got to engage all the secondary literature, <laughs> and uh, that's the really driest part, I think. Some of the secondary literature is actually interesting, but then some of it is just, you know, rehearsing what other people have said and, uh, you know, over and over and over again. The primary sources, I, I enjoy most of them, but uh, still that's not where the life is, where you're, you know, reading the Greek and the Roman sources. I love those, but when having read those, I come back to Scripture and hear Scripture afresh. It just brings it all the more alive because I'm more in that world of the New Testament and able to put myself more in the place of the first audience and, and understand why uh, these particular instructions were given or these particular examples are, are important so that I can apply it in analogous ways to analogous kinds of settings today. Oh, that's terrific. That's wonderful, Craig. Well, finally, can I ask you, uh, because of your expertise in New Testament background, uh, could you give me roughly five uh, non-biblical texts that you would recommend to students if they wanted to uh, start somewhere about reading, reading some of these primary sources? If you, if you had to give like five particular works, Jewish or Greek or Roman texts, do you have a, like a top five things that, you know, that, that someone say in, in a master's program if New Testament should definitely read? Well, <clears throat> some are more relevant for some books of the New Testament than others. And I, I learned this the hard way over time as I was just reading through sources and seeing what they were most relevant for. But for reading Paul, a great place to start would be Wisdom of Solomon because it gives you a, a, a Hellenistic Jewish, you know, a diaspora Jewish perspective um, that engages some actually with Greek philosophy, although not on the high level of, of Philo of Alexandria. Um, Wisdom of Solomon's in the Apocrypha, so it's very easily accessible. Um, I think most scholars, and certainly I, believe it's, it's pre-Christian, so it's from a relevant date and was widely circulated. Another uh, relevant for, for that, those kind of circles, uh, I mean, you've got all of Philo, but to narrow it down, something that would be relevant would be Josephus' uh, Against Apium. Um, if you want to get more about the Jewish War, uh, which is very relevant for certain events that took place and um, certain um, like abomination of desolation and, and so on. Um, Josephus's war, you know, that's that's good, but it's long. His antiquities is good, but it's even longer. So you could look at his life, uh, his autobiography. It's shorter. You can get kind of a summary of it there. For understanding um, Jewish thought in Judea. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls obviously are very important, but among them, if you if you need just one sample, I'd probably start with um, the Community Rule, uh, often abbreviated 1QS, uh, Manual of Discipline. It's also called. Um, I would recommend the Damascus document, but because it's in somewhat different forms, it can complicate citation. Uh, First Enoch is extremely important for understanding ideas that were widely circulated in uh, 
first century Judaism and earlier. Uh, and that will help with Revelation. It'll also help with the, the Gospels and, and some other material. And then, if I only get to choose one more, boy, that's hard to narrow down. Uh, you, you, you could go for Seneca or Epictetus for a sample of Stoic philosophy. You could go to uh, Tacitus's Annals for, for Roman history. Uh, but probably I would, if I had to narrow it down, maybe I'd say go to Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Caesars just to get a sample of how ancient biography, what, one of the ways that ancient biography was written. Well, I've been talking to Professor Craig Keener of Asbury Seminary about New Testament background and various biblical commentaries. Craig, thank you for your time. It has been a pleasure. Great to be with you, Michael. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, then please visit our website, NewTestamentWorld.com. There you'll find links to the book, The New Testament in Its World, along with links to the video series that Tom and I filmed on locations around Israel and the Mediterranean. You can also download a free in-depth guide to the material we talked about in this episode, which includes show notes, discussion questions, and resources for further study. It includes items we didn't get to today, so I really encourage you to check it out. The website, again, is NewTestamentWorld.com. In the next episode of the New Testament in its World podcast, we'll discuss canonization. We'll hear from Tom Wright on his reading and writing habits. We'll also look at the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll also hear from Professor Lynn Cowick on women in the world of the earliest Christians. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.